Wow, isn't that amazing? What a great testimony and a great introduction for what we're going to be covering today. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Leon Backer, and uh, with my wife, Deidre, uh, we've been coming to the street for about seven years. I'm a life group leader and uh, really enjoy uh, the fellowship and the company that I keep in our life group. If you want to know a little bit of a trivial aspect about me, um, I'm somebody who really does not enjoy reality TV. In fact, I despise it. But I have to confess a fault. There is one show that I really do enjoy that's a reality TV show, and it's called Gold Rush. It's on the Discovery Channel. Right. Right, so it's a, it's a great show. What I really find compelling about this particular show is that every single week, there are just tra traumas and dramas and problems. There's always equipment that's breaking down. There are always interpersonal problems. And of course, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars digging in places where there is no gold. So these problems are things that they're facing every single week. But after having shifted hundreds, if not thousands of tons of dirt and soil, they come at the end of the week to start weighing up this gold, and they come with this little bowl of precious substance that makes all the hard work and effort worthwhile. And then what they do is they take some of that gold and they mix it with some chemicals and they start to put it into a smelter. And they heat it until it is absolutely white hot. It's like roiling lava in the smelter. And they pour it out into a mold and out comes all of this black gunk and impurity, this dross that sits on the surface, that hardens as it cools, and then they chip it off, and what's left is pure gold. And um, in 1 Peter verse 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold refined in fire may result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And the passage that we're looking at in James today seems to me to fit quite nicely with that particular picture. That suffering has a purpose, that we like gold are precious to the Lord. In fact, it says we're more precious than gold. And he's put in and continues to put in so much effort to saving us, initially finding us, purifying us. He loves us so much that he's prepared to allow suffering to have its perfect work in us, his children, to produce the thing that's of eternal value, our character. See, when we leave this world, we don't take anything with us other than our character that the Holy Spirit has helped shape in us, and that which we've helped to contribute to in other people through our good works. That's about it. I think um, Bruce said last week, you know, you never see a hearse with a U-Haul attached, right? And so that's what we take from this world. And so when we start to look at our character, we'll start to see the value that suffering has in terms of that. 
Now, we've been working our way through the book of James over the last few weeks, and the topic has been faith that works. And so if we just look at some of those key points, we'll see that many of those same elements come through in the passage today and what we'll be looking at. Firstly, trials help us grow. That was from chapter one. God gives wisdom if we ask. It's about doing and not just knowing. You know, faith without works is useless. So you, knowing isn't enough, you've got to put it into action. Being aware of the deception of sin, especially as it relates to the tongue. The power of humility. Being submissive to God's will. That we're to use our resources to serve God and not ourselves. And as we'll see today, suffering is rewarded. Now, we've heard the word patience quite a bit already today, and in some respects, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll probably see that it talks about patience and suffering. I find that really ironic. You know, the word patience comes from the Latin word pate, which means to suffer. <laughs> so when you say to somebody, be patient, what you're actually telling them is to suffer, right? And it just recognizes that these things are so interwoven. And I think the point that Dan made, you know, you don't really learn patience outside of suffering. They're so interconnected. So we're going to see that many of these themes are going to be present in our passage today and that God uses suffering for our good. Now, one other thing I'd say is that through all of this that we're talking about today, there's one kind of overarching lens that I think you need to look through, and that is that God is good. Everything he does is good. In Romans 8.28, we're promised that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So somehow we have suffering and we have to know that God's goodness will come through through our experiences, that there is good in it. It may not seem like that, but it's true. And let me start by saying, firstly, that James has three great pictures that we're going to explore today. He's great in terms of giving us some really practical things that give us a really good clue about what he means. The first thing I'd say is that all of us suffer, right? None of us are able to escape suffering. It's just part and parcel of this world, whether it's physical, whether it's psychological, whether it's social, whether it's spiritual, we all suffer. Fortunately, not all the time, right? But we all suffer. And sometimes the periods of suffering can be significant and prolonged. I just want to make one little caveat here that it's very difficult to compare our suffering with others. You remember that's, that sort of saying which said, I used to complain about the fact that I had no shoes until I met the man who had no feet. Right? I can't relate, in a sense, to Dan's suffering. I have uh, plantar fasciitis, which means I can no longer run, right? But I don't have the situation that Dan is facing. And similarly, there have been events in my life which have been extraordinarily painful and difficult. Other people may not have experienced those. It's not about who suffers most, right? We all suffer. We all suffer, and so we can all, in that sense, take heart from the things that James talks about today. And if, as I say, there was one overarching thing I would say about it is that God works good out of our suffering. 
So there are two types of suffering that I'm going to look at today. There's the suffering that we can't control, and then there's the suffering that we can control. And there are different things that we can do to cope with those two things. So some suffering comes, and we have no control over it. And you can think about pandemics, right? We don't control that. We don't control natural disasters, like earthquakes. We don't control storms. These are things that impact and can cause an immense amount of suffering. But people can cause suffering too. You think about living in Myanmar or Mali. You think about places where rulers are corrupt and oppressive. You can't control that. And also, there are greedy and abusive people who can impact our lives as a consequence of their sinful behaviours. We can't necessarily control those things either. And as we saw in the passage last week in James, where James is talking about the wicked rich and the impact that they had on the Christian church at the time, there wasn't much that they could do about that. They just had to endure it. And at the moment today, there are 350 million Christians that live in countries where Christians are directly targeted for persecution. And they're suffering for their faith. They can't necessarily control the environment that they're in. So James is clearly talking to people like that because that's the nature of the audience that he's writing to. But the principles that he applies, I think, apply to all suffering, and we're going to be looking at that today. One of the things that I think we'd say straight away is that, particularly in persecution, it's understandable that that challenges our ability and willingness to live like Jesus. When people behave really badly, you know, it's very hard to turn the other cheek rather than to strike back. So James immediately reminds them that Jesus is coming back, that all suffering has an expiry date. There's only a certain amount of time that we have to endure. When Jesus comes back, the scriptures tell us that all suffering will end. There'll be no more tears. We have an eternity to look forward to that is blessed and contains no suffering. So at its very worst, you know, we have 70 or 80 years in which we may have to endure the events and the circumstances that we're living in but then it will come to an end. And what's more, James tells us that the reward we receive, and same with Peter, that the reward we receive by living through and enduring faithfully is something that we will take with us into eternity. So if there's 60 or 70 years or 80 years of hardship, what is that compared to a million years, a billion years, a trillion years, and so on? of reward for that endurance. When Jesus comes back, all suffering will end. So James tells his audience, the the people who are listening to his letter, be patient or long suffering. No matter how bad it gets, it's gonna end. And therefore, it's an encouragement to be hopeful and patient. So even just knowing in a sense that it's temporary is something that can help us endure. You think about some of the things that you might have been frightened of in life. I used to be terrified of public speaking. And um, I remember when I was at high school, 
I literally could not remember speaking. I would get up, my knees would shake, my mind would go blank, and then I'd sort of eventually stumble to an end and get down. But I always used to dread getting up there, but I knew that it was only going to last for a certain short period of time, and then it would be over, right? And so it's a bit like that in life. We know that it has an end and that there is a good end for us in terms of that. So what does James mean then when he starts to talk about the farmer? Well, the first thing I'd say about the farmer is when you are waiting for rain, you have no control over it. The weather is outside of your control. And the farmer that James is talking about doesn't have to just wait for one rain, he has to wait for two, the autumn and the spring rains. And sometimes it's called the former and the latter rains. And what makes that rain so important is that the first rain comes and it softens the soil and allows the seed to germinate. So it's critical that it's there for planting. Then the farmer has to wait while the plant grows. He has to wait for the second rain to bring on the full flush of the head of grain so that the harvest can then take place. So... The farmer has no control over the rain. He just has to sort of look at what's happening to his plants and then believe that God is going to bring the rain at the right time to really reap a harvest. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at farmers, I don't actually see them sitting around just kind of gazing up at the clouds, you know, spending all day, you know, when's the rain going to come? Farmers are very active while they're waiting. They sharpen tools. They mend fences, they tend animals, probably weed, do lots of other things like that. And so for us as well, we may feel that we are in circumstances that we can't control, but we don't just sit around waiting for the suffering to end. There are still plenty of things that God asks of us to continue to do. So what can we do when we're in that circumstance of sitting waiting, and we don't have control. What we can do, if we're suffering, the first thing we can do is we can start with prayer. Let God know how you feel. Pour out your heart. Scripture tells us that if we cast our cares upon him, right, we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So tell God how you feel. Now, surprisingly, he already knows, right? If God keeps count of the hairs on your head, right? if he bothers to track something so insignificant, won't it make sense that he really knows the stuff that's important to you, like your suffering, like the hardship that you might be going through? Of course he does. By the way, there's somewhere between 90 and 130,000 hairs on your head, depending <laughs> upon um, the color of your hair and the thickness of it. So just throw that in there. If that's all you remember, um, yeah, that probably wasn't a good thing to say. <laughs> so prayer is such a powerful tool in dealing with suffering. Not just because we can tell God about how we feel, but also we can ask him for a solution. If you're stuck, ask for wisdom. If you're sick, ask for healing. If you're stressed and anxious, ask for peace. All of these things are promised in Scripture as something that God will provide. 
So scripture is a great encouragement for us as well. When you can read through the examples of people who have suffered, think about some of the examples in scripture. We can think about Hannah, we can think about Ruth, we can think about David, think about Jeremiah. There are all these different people, think about Job, of course, we'll come to Job in a minute, but you think about these people who have suffered and endured. You know, one of the great things about the Bible is that you can read in five or ten minutes what might have taken days, weeks, months, or even years for somebody to live through. And you can see the outcome of their endurance and the benefit that they got. That at the right time, not too early, not too late, God ended up intervening and making a difference. So we can get tremendous encouragement by seeing the examples of others and recognizing some of the things that have happened to us. You know, I, I had a sneak uh, conversation with Dan just before, and, and one of the things that we often do is when you recognize, you know, we get five minutes of hearing what Dan's lived through over the last four years, there's a whole lot of stuff there that we haven't heard, right? And similarly in scripture, and you look at some of the events that have occurred in people's lives, sometimes they take years. We don't see all the details about just how significant some of that suffering was. But we do see the most important bits, and we see the outcome of their endurance, that God met them and changed things, and that can give us great heart. We can also look at the book of Psalms. Psalms has this wonderful uh, element in it where many of the psalmists have poured out their heart, their desperation, their sorrow, and then sort of prayed you know, for God to come through and reminded themselves of some of the greatness of God. And we can do the same thing. We can pray those psalms. And that can be a powerful way of just releasing some of our own sense of frustration and difficulty. Psalm 23, of course, is an example that we all know. Uh, it's been a particularly important psalm for me when I've gone through some hard times in my life. And um, it's just amazing how uh, through that time, each of the different elements of that psalm have ended up become living for me. You know, so we can know the presence of the Good Shepherd in the darkest of valleys, guiding, directing, and comforting us. And I'll also say something too, don't ever be fooled into thinking that you somehow are suffering alone. Because right? one of the things that we can sometimes feel is that we're so isolated that nobody really understands our circumstances or situation. I can tell you now that God's promise is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, the Bible tells us you can't get away from God, no matter how much you try, that nothing can separate you from his love. So he's always there with you. He's walking with you. If you're a Christian, he's living inside you, and he's guiding you by his Holy Spirit and comforting you. So you never do this alone. And that, too, can be a great encouragement when you are going through suffering. Suffering can cause us to push into God in a way that nothing else can. I don't know about you, but when um, I'm suffering, and I've definitely had occasions in my life, uh, both historically and more recently, where I've suffered, nothing pushes me into God more desperately than pain. Right? And it's in those circumstances where often I find I can experience his sustaining presence and comfort impossible in any other way. 
And that in itself can be a really positive thing in our suffering. The other thing that suffering can sometimes do is it can remind us that even though I can't control what's going on, he can. He can. That some things I get so stressed about, so angry about, because I can't control them and I can't deal with them, but he can. So I can talk to him about those things and then I can trust him. You know, I can cast my cares and leave him to deal with it. And I think another thing that suffering can do is it can lead us to that place of humility where we just say, your will be done. God, I don't know everything that's going on. I can't see all your plans. I can only see this tiny slither of what's impacting me, but I can trust that you know what you're doing, and so I give it back to you. Do what you need to do. And I may never understand the reason for my suffering. You know, sometimes we can, right? Sometimes our circumstances and events resolve themselves and we can say, ah, now I see. But there may be things that happen in our life which we may never understand until we're actually able to ask him and we see him face to face. And then we may understand and may know. And there, there have been two especially difficult periods in my life um, which... <laughs> They're not the only two, of course, but they're two particular ones that I'll share with you this morning. One of them was that I had a mental breakdown in my late 20s, and uh, it, it was a horrible event, uh, not just for me, obviously, we really suffer alone, right? My wife Deirdre, my father and mother ended up having to suffer with me through this period of time. It was uh, unbelievably painful extremely difficult and um, yeah. in many respects uh, I've suffered with depression ever since through my life. The other event uh, was when uh, my daughter developed an eating disorder in her late teens, uh, sorry her early teens and um, that also was incredibly difficult for us as a family to deal with. And through both of those painful experiences, I remember asking God, I desperately on my knees praying, God, why? Why is this happening? What possible good can come out of these events? I'm so broken, I'm so fragile, I feel so desperate. Things are so hard. What possible good can come out of it? Now these events, fortunately, Unfortunately, they, they're now years in the past, but they took a long time to resolve themselves. And even after 10 or 15 years of having been depressed because I felt so, so broken and fragile and things were still so difficult on occasions, I would ask God from time to time, well, you know, where's the good out of this? What possible benefit has there been? But even in the last two years, sorry, in the last year, there have been two of my colleagues at work who have had daughters who have suffered from eating disorders. And I've been able to support, advise, and comfort them uh, in ways that obviously would have been impossible if I hadn't been through that same experience myself. And in particularly in one case, there was no help for them. They weren't able to get to see the eating disorder services. They had to basically, for the first three months, deal with the circumstances on their own. And I could say, here's what we did, this is what helped. They had a sounding board to talk ideas over. And as a consequence, they've done really well. So, you know, in the same way in terms of depression, depression's a very common thing, by the way. There are so many people who get depressed. 
And so, uh, as you can imagine, there have been lots of people who I've spoken to since who have had the same kind of experiences as I've had, and I've been able to say, look, I know exactly what you mean. I've been there. I've done that. Here are some of the things that I've found useful. Maybe these will help you. So I can already start to see the benefit, and I believe that there's still plenty more to come, that God will work those painful events into good, not just for me, but also for plenty of others. And as James sort of says, uh, the farmer doesn't sit around, right? He's not just sitting there. He's continuing to work, and so should we be. We can be diligent in doing good works while we are suffering, and that can have immense benefit, not just for others, but it also is pleasing to the Lord. Um, my sister-in-law died in February. She uh, was in Australia, so obviously we weren't able to get to see her before she died. She's a wonderful Christian woman. She had a huge impact on my wife, Deirdre, in terms of her becoming a Christian. Great, we had the dedication this morning, isn't it? Older siblings can have that kind of impact, and certainly that was the case uh, for Deirdre. Now, she died of breast cancer after having suffered for about five years. Uh, she experienced amazing healing. So we were actually, we went to see her about three years ago, and we were there praying with her husband. She'd be in such pain, if she coughed, she'd break a rib. That's the sort of um, circumstances that she was in. And we would be just praying for her, and the pain would just go. She'd just, it would just stop. She got amazing comfort from um, the Holy Spirit and from the Lord in terms of times of worship as she was going through this. But when she died, and we were obviously watching her funeral, most amazing thing, everybody who came up and spoke about her said the same thing, that even though she was suffering, she was such a blessing to everybody else. You know, in the last week of her life, on her deathbed, in the hospital, she was just in that respite care, she led four people to the Lord because of the power of her testimony and the obvious love she had for Jesus. So when you're suffering, there's still plenty of opportunities for us to serve the Lord and see that precious fruit of the earth come forth. So what about suffering that's under our control? Well, James says that we can stand firm, and literally what that means is we can strengthen our hearts. So what does he mean by strengthening our hearts? Well, kind of reminds us that our hearts are pivotal in terms of enduring suffering. Our hearts can be a tremendous source of strength, or else they can be a source of weakness and vulnerability. So how do we strengthen our hearts? In the book of Proverbs, uh, I love the book of Proverbs, by the way, 4.23 says, guard your hearts above all else, for everything you do flows from it. So how do we guard our hearts? Well, firstly, we can guard our hearts by refusing to put things into our hearts, exposing ourselves to things that undermine our beliefs, that undermine our faith and our confidence, that undermine our hope. And that may mean avoiding things that lead to anxiety, fear, or pain. So um, think about your social media posts here, your mainstream media potentially, but also bad habits. There are things that we can do ourselves that end up leading to suffering. 
And we may not even be aware of the impact of some of those things on us. When I was depressed, I used to play computer games. Right? That was how I sort of passed the time in my 20s and 30s and 40s. Right? That was a kind of entertainment. I won't go on, because it's, it's habit for me. But you can see how when you're doing that sort of thing, um, I was anxious, right? I was really anxious. And so I'd go and play shoot 'em ups and I'd be in a panic at the end of it. And eventually the penny dropped. Maybe this wasn't good for me. Maybe I actually needed to stop that and do something else instead that actually was constructive and helpful. So some of these things that we use to cope can actually make things worse. And obviously we know about drugs and alcohol and pornography. But as you can see, there are also other habits, like mine, that necessarily aren't helpful. They can actually be self-harming. And I'd add to that, that some of the things that we think and allow ourselves to think are also in the same vein. Comparing yourself with others, for example. Always putting yourself down. Focusing on your fears and failures ruminating on all the things that you think you're bad or are bad about you are examples of things that undermine our confidence and weaken our hearts. Wouldn't it be far better to actually start to focus on the things that God thinks about you? Because I can tell you what God thinks about you is true, because he's true. Everything else that you think about that doesn't agree with God is in fact a lie, right? So think about what God tells you. Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 8 that it's far better for us to think on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, those are the things that we should think about. Now against that list of criteria, how does your social media posts sit? How does even the mainstream media fit? I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, I don't see a lot of purity or excellence in what I see there. You see, sometimes suffering's not out of our control. These are things that are in our control. Sometimes suffering comes from the things that we have allowed to happen or the things that we do. A lack of wisdom can lead to suffering, as can sin. And the natural consequences of deliberately ignoring or going against God's will is pain and suffering. That's a natural consequence. So the consequences of sin and its effects on us or others can be there to help us repent. It can be a signal that we're actually walking in the wrong direction. The word repent basically means to turn around 180 degrees and walk in the other direction. Instead of following my will and doing what I want, which has these painful consequences, I turn around and I do what God wants and I walk according to his ways and I align my life with the principles of his word and that's what wisdom is. So the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves as a father disciplines his children. Sometimes suffering can be God's discipline. And James tells us that in all such circumstances we can ask for wisdom. If you're in any doubt, just ask. God will tell you. Is this me, Lord? 
Is this something that's in my control? Show me, tell me, lead me. And then James goes on to talk about the importance of others around us in suffering. We need to remember that we don't live life alone. And when we're Christians, we have a family, a church that we belong to that can help support us in suffering. We've got people who can pray for us. We've got people who can guide us and give us wisdom. There are those who can minister God's grace to us. And we should avail ourselves of those opportunities. But also, the flip side here is part of what James is talking about, that when people need support, we shouldn't grumble. And what he says, when he says grumble, the Greek word actually means this deep sigh or groan, sort of inaudible. You can almost imagine the rolling of the eyes that goes with it, right? Of irritation and frustration and resentment. We have to be able to think of others who are suffering and not just ourselves and treat them kindly. You see, James says that God is compassionate and merciful. That's how he is towards us. And if we live like Jesus, then that is how we're going to live towards others. We will be compassionate and merciful too. And we will try and help and support. If we don't, then of course it can lead to judgment because we can harbor a grudge and resentment. And James tells us that we shouldn't judge. And he's reminding us of what um, Jesus said, that how we judge others is how we ourselves will be judged. And the judge is standing at the door, literally with his hand on the door. And you can imagine he'll be listening and knowing what's in your heart. So when people need support and encouragement, James is telling them, be supportive, be encouraging, be compassionate. The odd thing is that psychologists have long known that when people who are suffering show kindness to others, they benefit themselves. If you're suffering, one of the best things you can do for yourself is show kindness to others. It's also clear that when we need help in suffering that we should reach out for it. And I'd really encourage you, if you're suffering, don't try and do it on your own. Get help, get support. There are people around you here who can be that for you. Even if we have to do things on our own, even if we have to suffer alone, there is a reward for us if we endure. James says in verse 10, to consider the prophets who spoke the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is a a prophet who I greatly admire. Um, He was very young when he started his ministry, and he suffered a great deal because what he said was unpopular. He basically swam against the tide of everybody else around him. He warned of judgment, called for repentance. He was imprisoned, despised, threatened, and ignored. That was the kind of result of his ministry. It's very hard to look through his ministry and see any occasion when people actually listened and did what he said. And yet through the whole of his life, He persisted being faithful to the Lord's will. He refused to be pressed into the mold of the world. And in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, we are in the same situation where the world is constantly opposing us, trying to press us into its mold. 
all of the things that we see around us, the people that we engage with, are encouraging us to live, act, and think in ungodly ways. But what does Paul say? He says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us, allowing the Word of God to work in us the nature of God. And there are times when we will have to suffer because we are Christians, because of our faith. And in times like that, we are called to stand firm and hold fast. Now, James also mentions Job as an example of suffering and endurance. But also, his story shows us that we have to be careful about our own simplistic ideas of the cause for suffering. And for those of you who, who perhaps don't know the story, Job had this experience of a wonderful life. Everything was fantastic. It was a great life. And within the space of a couple of days, all his children were killed. All of his flocks and crops destroyed. And then, to top it off, his own physical health deteriorated to such an extent that he was covered head to foot in painful boils. His wife commented on his change in circumstances, and she just said, why don't you just curse God and die? That's how significant and extreme the change was. Job thought that his suffering, or that suffering, only occurred to the wicked, and therefore, in his situation, God had somehow made a mistake. Because why was he suffering when he knew he wasn't wicked? And we know at the end of the story, God reveals himself, never answers or gives an explanation, but just basically tells Job, this is you, this is me, right? I'm all-knowing, I'm all-wise, I created all of these things around you that you have no idea about. Do you think I would have made a mistake? And of course, Job recognizes no, and that what he needed to do was rely on the faithfulness and the character of God. God is good. And we know that at the end of the story, God replaced double everything that Job had lost. So we have to be careful about why we think suffering might occur and not judge others who are suffering. We don't really know. God may never show them, he may never show us until we see him face to face. Now I'm reminded too that the farmer has to wait for his crop to reach maturity. And sometimes the circumstances that you or I are in when we're suffering are yet to reach maturity. And that's another reason why we have to endure. God has an answer, it will come at the right time. As I mentioned before, God is never too early it's never too late, it's just right on time. So to sum up, I suppose we've covered uh, a number of things, and I'll just quickly whip through these. So God uses suffering to transform us and refine our character. To deal with suffering, we can look at it in the light of eternity. Jesus is returning. We can seek his presence and pray. We can trust him to do his work when he is ready. You think about the patient farmer and the rain will eventually come. Think about Job and the blessing that came at the end. We can apply the truths in his word. We can strengthen our hearts, guard and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We can rely upon the support and guidance from the body and we can provide that in turn 
We don't walk alone. And finally, we can keep doing the good works that he has prepared for us. And think about Jeremiah the prophet. So as we come to communion, I suppose it's appropriate for us to think a little bit about how Jesus suffered. Because all of the things that we've talked about reach their fulfillment in his suffering. We can see through the Gospels the story of Jesus as he went through his suffering. He knew he was going to die a horrible death. Weeks before he went to the cross, he was telling his disciples what must take place. And it was a horrible, painful, physical death. He was whipped and scourged before he got there. He was mocked. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was abandoned by all of his disciples. He was then wrongfully convicted for telling the truth. And then he knew he was going to be the bearer of all sin. Who knew no sin? He was going to bear it on our behalf. And so he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked the Father to take the cup of suffering from him. We're told that it was such an anguished period of time for Jesus that literally he sweated drops of blood, which indicates an incredibly high blood pressure. That's how much of an anguish Jesus was in. And he prayed and asked the Father to take the cup from him. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. So he endured the suffering and the shame, bearing in his body the punishment that was meant for you and me. He took our place on that cross, exchanged his sinless nature for our sinful nature so that we could now have his nature. The door to our relationship with God was now open because of his death on the cross and we could be forgiven our sins. We could be healed of our infirmities and we could claim relationship with God as our Father. Everything we would need to live a new life, he provided through his suffering. And that's what helped him to endure the cross. It says the joy that was set before him, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the joy that was set before him was you and me being in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You and I were the reason that he died. So is there anything that you're struggling with today? Let me tell you, Jesus paid the price for you to have the help you need. And not only was the gift of God all-encompassing, but in case you've got any doubt, Paul says in Romans that if God gave his only son to die for us, how much more will he not give us all things? So as you're taking communion this morning, if you're suffering, ask Jesus for wisdom. Ask Jesus for healing. Ask Jesus for peace. And if you're not suffering, then it's a great opportunity just to thank him for his death and cross, on that cross, in exchange for us. So come, take the communion this morning. Thank Jesus.